Her honor, I'm going to open with a funny story because, you know, you gotta, you gotta do that. So, all right, let's get started. An elderly lady was well known for her faith and for her boldness in talking about it. She would stand on her front porch and shout, praise the Lord. Next door to her lived an atheist who would get so angry at her proclamations, he would shout, there ain't no Lord. Hard times set in on the elderly lady, and she prayed for God to send her some assistance. She stood on her porch and shouted, Praise the Lord, God, I need food. I'm having a hard time. Please, Lord, send me some groceries. The next morning, the lady went out on her porch and saw a large bag of groceries and shouted, Praise the Lord. The neighbor jumped from behind a bush and said, Ha, I told you there was no Lord. I bought those groceries. God didn't. The lady started jumping up and down and clapping her hands and saying, Praise the Lord. He not only sent me groceries, but he made the devil pay for them. <laughs> so, the, the Bible lists many reasons to praise the Lord and to give him thanks. His attributes, his mighty works, his rich blessings, and yes, even his destruction of the wicked. Psalm 96, 11 through 13 says, Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. And then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. As man's day draws to a close and the true king prepares to return to earth, heaven will rejoice. As that long-awaited time approaches, the scene in Revelation shifts from earth to heaven. Read along with me, Revelation 19, 1 through 6. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. So just to clarify, sometime around the destruction of Babylon, demons are leading the armies of the remaining world to Armageddon, and it is to that battle that Christ returns. The battle is about to start, then Christ comes, then the kingdom. So it's this interval of time between the destruction of Babylon and the final coming of Christ that we are taken to heaven. And we see that heaven is filled with praise. And this is not an uncaring or insensitive rejoicing over Babylon's destruction. The reality is that these sinners have had the greatest opportunity to repent after living through the tribulation, hearing the gospel preached to the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, the two witnesses, the redeemed saved during this time, and even a powerful angel. Yet they will remain unrepentant to the very end. This rejoicing, these hallelujahs, used only here in the entire New Testament, are ringing out for a few different reasons. The word hallelujah in this chapter expresses praise for God's judgment on the wicked oppressors of his people. 
Heaven is rejoicing specifically because first, salvation has come for God's people. They're celebrating the final aspect of salvation history, the glorification of the saints in the kingdom of Christ. God has delivered his people from Satan, demons, the Antichrist, sinners, and the cursed world. God's glory and power are on display. The next reason heaven's rejoicing is because God's judgments are true and righteous. We live, as you know, in a very wicked and immoral world, and it's only going to get worse. And throughout history, God's people have longed for his justice to come. We hate sin because it mocks God. We long for a world characterized by holiness and justice. And this will only happen when Christ establishes his righteous kingdom and rules with a rod of iron. Another reason for rejoicing is that rebellion has ended. Babylon is permanently destroyed. No more false religion, persecution, immorality, materialism, injustice. It's all over. The rebellion that began in the Garden of Eden is finally ended. And apart from a futile, short-lived revolt at the end of the millennium that will be squashed in an instant, it's over. Man will never again rule the world. Another reason to rejoice is that God is in control. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. God is in charge, and here comes the multitude of praise with millions of angels, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, and all the redeemed, giving praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. John hears something like the voice of a great multitude and likens it to the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder. John MacArthur says, just imagine the most loud thunder you've ever heard and having that hit you at the bottom of Niagara Falls, and that gives you a small idea of the noise. Verse 7 tells us that the final reason that heaven is rejoicing is because the bride has been joined to Christ. The marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. We know the Lamb is Jesus Christ, and New Testament passages like Ephesians 5 and 2 Corinthians 11:2 clearly proclaim that the bride is the church of Christ bought with his own blood. Now, weddings today are a big deal, but in biblical times, it was the single greatest celebration, even more elaborate than today, and it consisted of various stages. The first stage was the betrothal, and this was similar to being engaged. This stage lasted about a year, and though the couple lived apart, they were considered married. The second stage occurred at the end of the year when the groom would leave his home, accompanied by friends, and make his way to the home of the bride, and then he would take her to his house. The third stage took place at the groom's house where they would consummate the marriage and the ancient honeymoon lasted seven days. The fourth stage was a great celebration time at the home of the groom. Guests were invited and there was a great feast which celebrated the marriage. All of heaven is rejoicing because this fourth stage, the marriage supper of Christ has arrived. In this present age, we the church are in the betrothal period. Legally, we're the bride of Christ, but we've never been to his home. When the rapture of the church occurs, it will be the second stage when he brings us to his father's house as he comes to receive us to himself. For seven years, the honeymoon will take place, and this is the time we go before the Bema seat of Christ, and the spots and wrinkles will all be removed. Jesus said in John 14, 1 through 3, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you will be also. 
So at the end of the tribulation, the celebration will begin. The marriage supper of the Lamb will take place because we are told his bride has made herself ready. An amazing truth found in verse 8 says, It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The church is properly dressed, and the amazing truth is that her bridal gown will be the rewards that she has received from her faithful service to Christ during the church age. Has it ever occurred to you that at the end, or that at the marriage of the bride to the lamb, each of us will be wearing the wedding garment of our making? Now, as believers, we are clothed at the time of salvation with imputed righteousness of Christ. But this verse is telling us that how we live our life for him in this brief period of time on earth determines our appearance as his bride in the, our beautiful wedding gown. All of our service to Christ will be worth it. Our struggles to obey him, to serve the Lord with pure motives, the daily giving of ourselves, this choice to obey or ignore his word, will somehow determine this. So let this be an encouragement to you today to not have regrets and to continue to be faithful. What kind of dress will you be wearing when it's time for the marriage supper of the Lamb? And as my mom would say, let's not be in bikinis, okay? <laughs> Her little line. <laughs> so, uh, next, we want to know, who are the invited guests to the wedding that verse 9 tells us that are blessed? As I study this, I realize there are some differing views. Some believe that the tribulation saints and the Old Testament believers um, make up the guests, while others hold to the belief that all believers throughout time make up the bride of Christ. We must remember, though, that we're only talking about imagery. The picture of a marriage is just a picture, and the imagery of the bride is a symbol of intimate union. While I personally do see evidence in other passages supporting the Old Testament and tribulation saints being the guests, it's really not a big issue. Whatever the distinctions are made in Scripture, all believers of all ages, eventually will enjoy the fullness and celebrations and glories of eternity. And John is so overwhelmed with what he sees. Verse 10 tells us he falls at the feet of the angel to worship him. The angel reproves him and says, don't do that, only worship God. And the focal point of this entire book is not to just reveal the future, but rather the wonder, majesty, and beauty of Jesus. He is worthy of all our praise. We are saved to worship God. And it will be our occupation throughout eternity. It reminds me of a quote that I have saved that came to my mind when I was writing this um, study. It says, it's inconsistent not to have time for God and to wish to spend eternity with him. So let's make sure today and all the days that God grants us here on earth, we're worshiping him and spending time with him. The last section in this chapter brings us to the moment that all eternity has been waiting for. As the scene opens, we're taken to heaven, verse 11, and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Heaven opens up this time, not to let John in, but to let Jesus out. He's not riding a donkey in humility, but instead a white horse, symbolizing victory over his enemies. The description faithful and true is in contrast to the unfaithfulness and lies of Satan, the Antichrist, and wicked people. Jesus is faithful to his word. He will always keep his word. The dragon is a deceiver. The beast is a false Christ. The second beast is a false prophet. But Jesus is faithful and true, and because of that, he alone is able to judge and wage war. 
Acts 17.31 says, He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Through a man he has appointed, the man Jesus Christ. And this doesn't come from a motive of pride or love of power or ambition, but in utter righteousness, in perfect holiness. Verse 12 says, His eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. He has eyes like a flaming fire, which means nothing escapes his notice. He sees it all. His crown speaks of his authority and royalty. They are all on his head because nobody else rules any place. His name that no one knows, there's something about him that is way beyond anything we can even comprehend. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and this is not his blood shed on the cross, but a picture of judgment. Verse 10 says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so with it he may swipe the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh, he is a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The sword is a symbol of his slaying power. It's out of his mouth because he speaks and it's done. Just like he spoke the world into existence in Genesis 1-3, so just by speaking, Christ will smite the nations of the world who are gathered together to fight him. There are no weapons. His word is enough. He tramples in an instant the ungodly. The slaughter is fearful and frightening, but mercy abused and grace spurned reaches this point. When he came the first time, they preferred a murder over him, and they killed him. They openly blasphemed God, and finally, in the end, their wickedness reaches irredeemable proportions. We ought to be so thankful to have been delivered from this wrath to come by our faith in Christ. We don't have to live under the threat of doom, but under the promise of joy. We don't, oh, sorry, <laughs> more reasons for us to praise and worship the Lord. As we move on to verse 17, we're given quite a picture. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, in order that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. These ungodly people who have rejected the only sacrifice by which they could be delivered from the day of vengeance, and they are now the sacrifice of their own vengeance. This is not to be confused with the marriage supper of the lamb. This is a call for all the scavenger birds to swoop down and feast on the dead bodies of the armies who fought against Christ at Armageddon. The armies of the world will be gathered around Israel on the plain of Megiddo stretching 200 miles north and south. The battle is so devastating that in Ezekiel, it tells us there will, it will be seven months to bury what's left after the bird have fed on the corpses. Our Lord is the God of patience, but patience will not be mocked forever. The day of wrath must come, and those who have refused the call of grace will be victims to this awful supper where their flesh is picked clean by the birds of the air. This is not the final judgment of the ungodly. This is simply their execution. Matthew 24, 29 through 30 gives us a clear picture of this day. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the power of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. What a sight that will be. Back to verse 20. And the beast was seized, 
and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. This is the first mention of the final hell and the first two occupants of the lake of fire, the Antichrist and the false prophet. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Isaiah 66 says, The lake of fire that will not be quenched. Verse 21, And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is where the human race is headed, to be, cor to be corpses torn apart by birds. Today, when a person dies who does not know Christ, their spirit goes to Hades, also called the unseen world. However, believers who die go immediately to be with Christ. One day, Hades will be emptied into hell, which is the lake of fire. Revelation 20:14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Any place separated from God is a hell of some kind. But this is the final form of that hell. Matthew 25, 11, it's called an everlasting fire. Revelation 14, 11 says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. How sad and tragic. We all have loved ones that are lost and without a relationship with the Lord. And how we long for their eyes to be open and for them to repent and see their need for a Savior before it's too late. Remember, though, God has shown his mercy, his power, his grace, and it is put on display day after day. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and that's why Jesus died, to provide a way of escape, to forgive our sins so we wouldn't have to experience his judgment. For those who know him, we live with hope because no matter how bad it gets here on earth or what trials we endure, he is the victor and nothing can separate us from his amazing love. I want to leave you with this powerful verse in 2 Peter 3.10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, the elements be destroyed with intense heat, the earth, the works be burned up, and since all these things are ought to be des destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? That's the question, isn't it? What kind of women ought you to be? Be diligent to be found in him, be spotless, blameless, live life in light of his coming. Let's not get sucked up in the frivolous issues of this world society. May our affections be on things above and not on things of the earth. And as I was writing this study, I was reminded of a great Johnny Erickson Tata songs. Growing up, we listened to all her songs, and the song was called The Only Thing I Want. I just wanted to read the chorus. The only thing I want is to be with Jesus, just to see him smile and say, well done, what a day that's going to be. I want to feel his strong and loving arms just hold me by his side and to be with him throughout eternity. Just to be with him is heaven enough for me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today and thank you for your word. Thank you that we can study and that we know that in the end you win and that we will spend eternity with you. I pray that you would help us to be faithful in our life and in the days that you give us and to love you and to serve you in your name. Amen.